0: Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Bob Akish Rafi. Today is June 15th, 2022, and I'm speaking with Eugenia Lean, who is Professor of Chinese History at Columbia University. She is the author of Vernacular Industrialism in China, Local Innovation and Translated Technologies in the Making of a Cosmetics Empire. Thank you for joining us, Eugenia.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Would you tell us a little bit about your work and how you were led to studying Chen Diaxian?
1: Yes, I'm happy to. Chen Diaxian is a very interesting figure from the late 19th century to the early 20th century. He lived from 1879 to 1940 during a very transitional period in Chinese history. This was a period when China went from being uh, an empire to becoming a modern nation state. And his life and his activities covered this transitional period. And I came across this figure initially through his writings. He was a well-known novelist of the early 20th century. He was known in particular for his romance novels that sold like hotcakes in the burgeoning print market in urban China. A few years into my examination of him as an individual, as a, as a novelist, I discovered that he had also started to publish very fascinating recipes on how to manufacture cosmetics. He printed these recipes in a how-to column, in a column that was titled Manufacturing Cosmetics, the Warehouse for Manufacturing Cosmetics, and it was featured in a woman's journal that he himself had published in 1915 in China. So it was an interesting aspect of his life that I had not known about. So I started to pursue that a little bit further. And I discovered that he was actually very entrepreneurial, not just in the world of letters, but also in the world of industry. And that made me wonder about the role of these lettered men in the emerging commercial and industrial world of China in the late 19th, early 20th century. Indeed, it turned out that he became a leading captain of industry. He not only published recipes on how to manufacture cosmetics, he actually opened and established a company called the Domestic Industries Company, the Association for Household Industries is another translation. And it was this company that it became actually a leading cosmetics and pharmaceutical company in China in the 1920s and 1930s. And so, with this company, he became a captain of industry. He was actually a leader of something known as the National products movement in China, which was a buy-in manufacturing Chinese products movement. Given sort of the multifaceted nature of this individual, I started to become curious about how lettered men and women who had traditionally been dismissed in conventional narratives as not being able to enter the modern world in Chinese history, I started to question that narrative with Chen Diexian. Clearly, he was classically educated. He was meant to become a traditional bureaucrat with his literary knowledge, and yet he rejected all of that. Instead, he went into the commercial world of printing and of making modern cosmetics. So he became, for me, a figure who could demonstrate that these purportedly traditional men and women mired in in classical Confucian texts, that they were actually quite able to navigate modern capitalism. They were able to sort of transition from the early modern period, the early modern empire, to the modern world uh, when China became a republic and was entering uh, the new capitalist global order.
0: You titled your book, vernacular industrialism in China. What is vernacular industrialism, and how does it fit into the changes happening in China in the late 19th and early 20th centuries?
1: So the concept vernacular industrialism is meant to capture the nature of industrialism in early 20th century China. And I would argue, actually, that this idea could be extended to other parts of the world that were experiencing capital capitalism and industrialization in ways that do not conform with how the Euro American nations went through industrialization. The Chinese case is a very illuminating case to understand this experience of vernacular industrialism, in part because this was a period where China was very weak. The Chinese Republic was not particularly promising in its early years. So these were very inhospitable conditions for industry building. Entrepreneurial types like Chen had to find ways to build industry in this inhospitable context and oftentimes they would do so in ways that we conventionally do not understand as sort of typical ways of building industry. So it would be through ad hoc measures, it would through be through being done outside of factories, in homes, it would be informal, it would often mix artisanal practices with modern manufacturing the knowledge base of industrialization was also quite eclectic. Sometimes industrialists would draw from modern chemistry and physics, but other times they would draw from indigenous forms of knowledge, deep traditions of materia medica, and so on and so forth. The notion of vernacular was meant to capture informality that might have characterized, at least informality from the perspective of a kind of a contemporary day understanding of what proper industrialization is, that characterized the actual on-the-ground practices that took place in China during this time period. One last thing that I want to add is that precisely because Chinese merchants and would-be industrialists were Faced with a lot of challenges, they oftentimes had to prove quite resourceful in their attempts to procure knowledge, oftentimes from abroad, in order to develop industry. And they would use a whole set of techniques to do this. Sometimes they would engage in acts of translation, direct acts of copying. Sometimes they would adapt foreign recipes. And then they would tinker with those recipes and, and try to improve them Try to source them local, You know, source the materials or ingredients that are necessary for those for those recipes locally. All of these practices are sort of fall under the rubric of vernacular industrialism. Perhaps to concretize this example, I could or concretize this idea. I would like to provide an example that is featured in my book. Chen's most famous product was uh, known as the Butterfly Brand Tooth Powder. And this became iconic for his company. It was also representative of the light manufacturing that characterized the industry of this period. Cosmetics was very easy to produce. It just involved assembling the assemblage of different ingredients. It did not require heavy industrial capital investment. You could do it at home. You could do it within a simple artisanal workshop. This was a very popular commodity to manufacture during this time period. And Chen was one of the earlier manufacturers of cosmetics. Powder-based cosmetics tended to rely on calcium carbonate or magnesium carbonate. These were very important ingredients for the making of powder-based cosmetics. So when Chen started to try to manufacture his various cosmetics, he sought to locally produce calcium carbonate because these were ingredients at this point in time these were the as a raw ingredient it was very very expensive they were oftentimes imported a lot of these raw ingredients and and chemical ingredients and it was very very expensive for chinese manufacturers to purchase them so in addition to seeking to produce finished goods you know like hair tonic or lipstick or soap you know a lot of these manufacturers also sought to locally source raw materials so one example that became associated with Qin's story was how he started to source calcium carbonate to manufacture his tooth powder. The story goes that he was sitting by the seashore in this near the city Ningbo, and he was writing poetry with a good friend. And suddenly, he realized that the beach in front of him was covered with. Not with sand, but with white bones. And so he asked his good friend, who was an official serving in that local arena area, why Why is this the case? And his friend said, well, this is cuttlefish season, and the water had washed ashore the cuttlefish, and they died. And the fish has, have now rotted away, but the bones remain. And he had an aha moment where he said, I can use this to locally source Calcium to, to produce the calcium carbonate that I need to make tooth powder. This was apocryphal. The story actually does not play out in, real, in the real uh, historical um, in actuality. He ended up actually not relying on cuttlefish. It, it takes a lot of energy to produce the amount of calcium one needs in order to make mass manufacture cosmetics from cuttlefish bones. And he ended up actually opening up a magnesium, carbonate, a magnesium factory. And indeed, he later on becomes the leading producer of magnesium in China. But nonetheless, the story kind of sticks and it becomes part of his brand. And it's important in part because it speaks to, A, his commitment to locally sourcing materials and ingredients, which was necessary during this period of nativist manufacturing. But it also speaks to this larger idea of vernacular industrialism, where you see individuals in places like China, this probably also took place in other parts of the global South, where given some of the economic imperialism that they were facing, perhaps the nascent sort of industrial infrastructure that they had in their immediate areas that they oftentimes had to become quite strategic and resourceful in their in their attempts to build industry. And so I just love that story because it really kind of captures the idea of vernacular industrialism. Then my final point about the concept and why I, I like the concept is that it is also meant to kind of challenge sort of the traditional narratives that the modern world was shaped and made by the industrial West, and that proper industrialization only took place in the modern West. I want to challenge that idea with the story of Chen Yexian and with this concept of vernacular industrialism, and suggest with the historical story of Chen Yexian and with this larger concept, that there were multiple ways to approach and experience industrialism in the modern world. Some of those ways are not necessarily familiar to those of us who are more familiar with the historical example of the rise of the modern factory in America or in Europe. And in fact, Chandish shows how, you know, a man of letters who liked to write poetry, who liked to engage in the copying of foreign technology, who like to sell romance novels that deal, dealt with and grappled with themes of profit and commerce, right? How all of these activities, which don't kind of fall under our sort of general understanding of what constitutes industry building, was in fact part and parcel of a very complex kind of experience of industrialization in China.
0: Can you say more about that? The story about the cuttlefish starts with Chen writing poetry, At the seaside, and you mentioned that he comes from an educated literary family and began his career as a fiction author. So what's the relationship between those two, and how did he navigate the transition from author to a technologist and a businessman?
1: Sure. As I mentioned, the late 19th, early 20th century was a period of transition in Chinese history, where the early modern empire, the Qing dynasty, collapses. During the Qing dynasty, the kind of work that was privileged was the ability to enter the bureaucracy. That was where the source of social, economic, political power rested. And the way to enter that bureaucracy was through acquiring classical knowledge, because you would take an exam, quite literally, that was predicated upon your deep knowledge of the Confucian classics. Uh, That didn't mean that bureaucrats, intellectuals, literati, did not have knowledge about the material world, about commerce, but rather what was privileged was textual knowledge. And so what that meant was that all elite men, and many women as well, had a very literate background and training. Qin was born at the end of the Qing Dynasty in 1879, and he was classically trained, because that was what was expected of him. But at a very young age, he rejected that traditional path. So when he was already in his late teens, early 20s, when he was living in Hangzhou, uh, this was the, the city from where he was born, he started to dabble in new things. And this included sort of experiments, chemical experiments that he would conduct in his literati studio. He imported scientific appliances and he wrote about them in order to kind of domesticate these new things. These were newfangled things that were actually kind of threatening to a lot of his peers. And so one way that he would kind of legitimate his wild experimentations in the Literati studio, as well as these kind of newfangled objects that he was importing as a a businessman already to Hangzhou was by writing poetry about them or by presenting them in kind of very lettered settings with his fellow literati peers, presenting them not necessarily as means to commercial success or necessarily as kind of a step towards profit making or industry making, but as something that was cultured that they as connoisseurs could enjoy. So he was the translator from the beginning. He knew exactly how to present these newfangled things to his peers in a respectful way. And oftentimes it was through literary presentation. When he moved to Shanghai after the empire collapsed, he, he went to Shanghai. Shanghai was a burgeoning city. It, there was newfound opportunity. This was a period where, precisely because the empire had fallen, traditional Orthodox ways of being a elite man and woman were changing rapidly. And people like Qin, who had already been curious about new ways and new things, went to Shanghai and took advantage of all the new opportunities that were there. And one of the things that Chen and many like him were able to do, they were able to translate their literary knowledge and literary skills into profit in Shanghai. Because Shanghai Shanghai, there was a burgeoning entertainment market. And so instead of writing poetry, which had a tremendous amount of cultural cachet in the late imperial period, he turned to, for example, these serial novels about romance. He made a tremendous amount of money from those serial novels that he then was able to literally translate into the founding of his new industrial, he used the proceeds from those novels to, to found his company that was going to manufacture the cosmetics that I discussed. So there was a very close relationship between his lettered work and his industrial work. And indeed, this notion of vernacular industrialism is actually kind of meant to capture this the array of work that went into making industry in China which was not just material work it wasn't just kind of the making of a factory it wasn't just kind of figuring out how to make the calcium carbonate it actually included this kind of production of knowledge and the production of knowledge in many literary forms so sometimes it was in poetry it was also sometimes in these how to columns that he edited. In addition to becoming a brand author, he was also a very powerful editor uh, in Shanghai. And he published cutting-edge journals, including women's journals. Women's journals at the time were sort of, sort of a site for modern knowledge. And in those journals, the, the magazine Women's World was the one that he edited. He had how-to magazines about how to, how to manufacture cosmetics in your home as a genteel woman. And later on down the road, he continued to edit these columns on manufacturing knowledge. There was one column known as the household knowledge, uh, common knowledge for the household, which he published in China's leading daily newspaper, the Shimbau. And there he presented, as a form of common knowledge, manufacturing recipes. And some of these manufacturing recipes were recipes directly translated from abroad. They were sometimes brand recipes and manufacturing formulas that were were starting to become branded, and by which I mean they were deemed exclusive property of certain companies, whether it's Burroughs Welcoming Company, unilever etc. And yet this was a period kind of prior to the rise of modern industrial property rights, before these categories were entirely fixed. And you see that... People like Chen Jixian, they were quite active in translating these brand recipes into the Chinese context and then spreading them, sharing them widely as common knowledge. The actual term in Chinese is Chang. You see here, he's using his literary practices of translation to actually acquire knowledge from abroad in order to share it widely with his fellow would-be manufacturers in order to build the
0: Chinese
1: industry. And and for him, this was not a problem.
0: So you've described how Chen adapts, copies, translates recipes and technologies from abroad and made it into common knowledge. And yet you also describe in your book how he vigorously pursued domestic counterfeits of his products. So how did Chen and his contemporaries understand property? And were these typical business practices for the time?
1: So this is a central theme in my book, I want to rethink contemporary or presentist understandings of ownership, uh, and this is important in part because China today is oftentimes targeted as the quintessential copier in the world, unable to innovate and a rogue manufacturer. And I want to suggest that this concept is, first of all, not entirely accurate. That Copying has a long history, and that copying actually, as a practice, is oftentimes linked to innovation, to the improvement of technologies. And so, I want to rethink this idea that copying is necessarily mutually exclusive from innovation. And so, I want to challenge that that there is a contradiction between sort of acts of copying and the ability to kind of build industry and to improve technologies. The idea that and Chen Jiexian offers me an opportunity to do this, and it also offers me an opportunity to kind of suggest in a moment prior to the formalization of modern IPR, you see these practices, the fluidity of adaptation, of tinkering, of copying, in, in the case of Chen Yexian. And I would suggest that that was also, it wasn't specific to China. It wasn't specific at all to Chen Yexian. But yeah, Chin was quite savvy in his pursuit of foreign technology. And he wanted to do this because he wanted to build Chinese industry. And he justified the translation and then the adaptation of foreign technologies and manufacturing recipes as a basis of building Chinese industry. So this was part of the national products movement, and it was presented as a form a very valid and ethically legitimate import substitution. As I mentioned above, the common knowledge recipes that were shared in the common knowledge how-to columns was something that he felt was a very ethical endeavor. This was something that he wanted to do in order to help his peers build Chinese industry. One of the things, though, that he did have problems with were the potential for copycatters to copycat his brand, his reputation. So, on the one hand, he was very comfortable with translating foreign technology, engaging in reverse engineering, presenting this as a form of import substitution, and he would quote and cite a longer tradition of strategic emulation in China. This had already started in the late 19th century. There was something known as fangzhi in Chinese, which was an idea and that this concept of of emulating strategically, right, in order to build, at this point, this was the late Qing when China wanted to build armaments. There was also a long history of of this tradition called remaking in Chinese, right, remaking foreign technologies within a local environment. So this very much coincided with Chen Diexian's commitment to adaptation, right, to locally sourcing ingredients and adapting formulas and, and recipes so that China could manufacture well. If this was a concept that he pursued, and, and this idea of copying was something that was fine in terms of appropriating foreign technologies, where he did draw the line was with the copying of his brand. right? So he was actually quite aggressive in pursuing local copycats who sought to rip off the butterfly brand. So his brand was a very powerful one. He was a, a brilliant marketer, and actually, he was able to draw from a long tradition of punning and playing with words that characterized the the lettered world of the late Qing and early twentieth century. And the brand name Butterfly it's that's the English name. The actual Chinese name, if you read the Chinese characters, literally means without peer. It doesn't mean butterfly. So the Chinese name, Pai it means the brand without peer. And it's meant to evoke kind of a militaristic sensibility. And this was made sense within the context of the national products movement, right? So this was meant to suggest that this brand was without peer among its foreign enemies, right? So there were no foreign brands that could compete with his tooth powder. And yet, in English, the term wudi pi is translated as butterfly. Why? Well, wudi pi is actually a pun. If you were to pronounce these three characters, these three Chinese characters in the regional dialect of Shanghai, the pronunciation in Shanghaiese was actually a homophone for the word butterfly. And so, he's trying to appeal to multiple audiences with this particular trademark, right? The The Without Peer appealed to a nationwide uh, audience and consumer base. The Shanghaiese pronunciation and the oral pun in Shanghaiese really appealed to the regional audience. And then Butterfly Brand, right, also appealed to a Western audience. There were Westerners living in Shanghai, living in China's cities and countryside who also bought his, his cosmetics. And indeed, this also kind of his cosmetics traveled beyond China itself. right? It also traveled into Southeast Asia, where it competed quite well with Japanese brands and European brands. We know that the trademark worked very, very effectively because he was actually able to outmaneuver competitive, competitors from Japan and Europe in in these markets, in part because he had a, a very clever trademark, but also because he could enter the market at a lower price point, right? This is the act of import substitution where he's able to produce locally at a local, at a a lower price point. He could sell uh, at a lower price. So this was something, the brand was quite important to him. And just one more layer of the pun I wanted to add is that uh, it actually played on his reputation as a romance novelist. He is known for the kind of novels that he wrote were known as Mandarin Duck and Butterfly Fiction. Mandarin ducks and butterflies were sort of themes, symbols for love in the Chinese literary tradition. So he's also kind of playing on his reputation as a grand author. And then finally, Chen Diexian, the Diexian, that's his given name, actually literally means butterfly immortal. So you can sort of see the levels of branding that this <laughs> this, this man does. And this very much, again, comes from the Chinese literary tradition where lettered men and women oftentimes had multiple names. Many of them were puns that served to kind of cultivate their, their oftentimes literary reputation. And he translated that into his commercial reputation. But all of this is to say that the trademark was very important to Chen Yexian. And so when others started to rip him off because his butterfly brand became a very powerful brand and there were copycats, local Chinese copycats, he was very, very aggressive in pursuing these copycats by deploying the kind of incohate IP that was being translated into China at the time. And he actually was one of the translators, right? So as I mentioned before, he did all kinds of translation work. Some of it was brand recipes. He also translated fiction. He was known as the leading translator of Sherlock Holmes, but he also translated legal tracks. And this included some of the, you know, sort of publications on IP. And he tried to institutionalize certain trademark infringement laws within China domestic. He didn't succeed again, the sort of infrastructure, the legal infrastructure was quite tumultuous during this time period, and i p was pretty nascent. So he found other ways to go after copycats, and this included sending thugs to <laughs> copycat factories, pursuing shops and merchants who sold counterfeit butterfly cosmetics and forcing them to publish in newspapers and journals that they had unethically sold counterfeit butterfly brand goods. So, you know, he was quite willing <laughs> to to sort of engage and pursue the unethical copying that he what he perceived was unethical copying. Now, from a contemporary perspective that seems utterly contradictory. On the one hand, he himself advocates reverse engineering, adaptation of foreign technologies, all in the name of building Chinese industry. And then on the other hand, he pursues trademark infringement, copiers who are copying his uh, brand name. My point is not to evaluate ethically whether or not what he says is right or wrong. My point is to kind of suggest that this was a period in an early moment in global IP where these categories are not yet fixed. And you see people like Chen taking advantage of the terrain, sometimes deploying IP to their advantage, and sometimes disregarding IP to their advantage. And I think that's actually probably something that occurred in all corners of the world. It wasn't something at all specific to China.
0: What kind of perspective might your observations and arguments about copying, innovation, translation, vernacular industrialism offer for contemporary discussions of ownership and innovation in China now?
1: So China today continues to be branded as the world's best copier, biggest counterfeiter, and all the expense of its ability to innovate. So I find the 21st century, the turn of the 21st century moment, to be actually quite similar to this early 20th century, turn of the 20th century moment, where China is entering or re-entering. These are moments where China is re-entering or entering into the different moments of global capitalism. And it's doing so oftentimes at a disadvantage, right? So I've discussed how early 20th century, the Chinese Empire had just collapsed and there was economic imperialism. late. 20th century, China was emerging from the Maoist period that was reformed in the 1980s under Deng Xiaoping, and that reform led to the opening up of China. And as China opened up in the late 1990s, early 2000s, We've witnessed in this recent history China becoming an economic powerhouse to the point that today, you know, there is a huge trade war existing between China and the U.S. and other parts of the West, precisely because China is such a threat in terms of trade and commerce globally. Both these moments are fascinating because China is being identified as a copycat nation in both of these moments. Already in the early 20th century, merchants like Burroughs, Wellcome and Company, Unilever—these sort of large transnational pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical, oftentimes pharmaceutical goods, right? And it was important that these were sort of pharmaceutical goods because pharmaceutical companies were actually very reliant upon kind of the trademark in order to protect their goods and their recipes, right? So they were actually quite aggressive in pursuing copycats worldwide. But China very, very quickly became targeted as. A nation that, with these audacious fraud, was taking place on the ground and so on and so forth. 21st century, you have very similar rhetoric. It's not just pharmaceutical goods. There's copying in all forms of industry, whether it's the Prada bag, the Nike shoe, or the iPhone. China is known as as kind of the prototype nation that's able to brilliantly copy the, the goods that are innovated in the West. And what's also similar in these two moments is that the conditions under which this this alleged counterfeiting takes place, is the fact that these are periods where Western powers are very interested in going to China, building their factories, using Chinese labor at a very cheap price in order to produce their brands. The economic imperialism that I discuss and describe in my book of the early 20th century, right, you have very similar kinds of uneven relations of capitalist production that characterize like the 21st century. So so I found these two moments to be actually very, very interesting to compare. And in many ways, what Chen Jiexian did as a nativist vernacular industrialist in the early 20th century, it presages some of the activities that occur in some of the in some of China's markets today. So, especially in places like Shenzhen, Shenzhen is a city in southern China, right near Hong Kong. It was an early city that really grew in the late uh, 20th century, 1980s, 1990s. It went from a very small village into this huge, right? It's this huge metropolis right now. But it was also identified by Deng Xiaoping in the 1980s as a special economic zone where westerners were invited to open up factories. This was the attempt on the part of the Chinese Communist Party to jumpstart its economy and incorporate capitalism into a communist regime. Shenzhen, as a result, became the site of manufacturing. Tiny, Taiwanese manufacturers went there, Western manufacturers went there, and all kinds of, as I said, from Nike to the iPhone, right? They have all, all their parts and from the the Nike shoelace to the various sort of parts of an iPhone, they're all being produced, they were all being produced in Shenzhen. What that generated, that kind of activity, on the manufacturing and industrial activity on the ground generated a lot of copying locally. One wonderful story is, and I'm not quite sure if it's urban myth, this is something that, I don't know if this actually took place, but I think it is very representative of some of the activities that did take place in Shenzhen, was this story of how Nike, the Nike factory was there and made a you know wonderful Nike shoe. And once it was done, one of the engineers in the Nike factory basically took the shoe and threw it over the wall <laughs> so that somebody on the other side of the wall could then take that shoe and prototype it in the artisanal workshop next door. And And what they would do then is sell that prototype at a much, again, lower price point. So those who would never have been able to buy the Nike shoe, the majority of the Chinese you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, China was still quite poor. Your average consumer was not going to buy the iPhone. It's not going to buy a Nike shoe. It's not going to buy the Prana bag. Those locally produced goods would adapt the prototype, cater to local Chinese tastes, sometimes use local materials, sometimes improve. They would argue that they are improving the shoe to fit the Chinese foot better, just as Chen Jianxian did with his tooth powder. You know, he adapted, he tinkered, he changed the formula, he used local ingredients, and he sold it as his own. And in fact, in the early 20th century, Chen got recognized, right? So he didn't just make tooth He made all sorts of gadgets that involved chemicals. One of his favorite things to produce, he had actually had, this was a lifelong project for him. It was the foam fire extinguisher. Foam fire extinguisher actually uses magnesium carbonate and he spent years from his early years in Hangzhou all the way until the 1930s when he was well established industrialist just perfecting his butterfly brand foam fire extinguisher and by the end he actually received a patent for it and the patent was not for his and this is from the nationalist state the nationalist state that came into power in 1927 in china and the nationalist state recognized his achievement, not because he had invented the foam fire extinguisher. No, they were fully aware that this is a technology that it existed, that he had gotten from abroad, but rather that he improved the technology and made it his own and made it China's own. And so that deserved a patent. That deserved the acknowledgement from the state. And similarly, today in the 21st century, The Chinese Communist Party is actually looking at some of this rogue manufacturing that is taking place in places like Shenzhen, and they're celebrating it. And they're celebrating it as communist makers' societies, makers' communities, which was meant to echo some of this focus on the new kinds of making that are emerging at the start of the Silicon Valley. This romantic origin myth of the Silicon Valley is that This was a period where people were kind of tinkering in their garages. They didn't want to work for the large corporations that claimed corporate ownership and uh, monopolized modern IP over technologies, but rather they were doing things in their backyard, tinkering away and then building a startup. So that kind of romantic mythology that's actually coming out of the Silicon Valley of these makers communities, ironically enough, the Chinese Communist Party is now has used similar rhetoric to describe the copying and adaptation that occurs in Shenzhen, which the West, including places like Microsoft, are are condemning (laughs) as yet another example of counterfeiting by the unethical Chinese.
0: That's fascinating. Thank you, Eugenia, for sharing your work and your perspectives with us. Thank you so much. Eugenia Lin's book is Vernacular Industrialism in China, Local Innovation and Translated Technologies in the Making of a Cosmetics Empire. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. You can find more resources for exploring this topic, as well as others, at chstm.org.